to hear her tell it, I would operate on her daily without anesthesia. Please. One fucking time. I hit her one time with a hairbrush. You're a terrible stop sucking child sometimes wants to be corrected. Answer me when I talk to you. When I felt this, I gave her criticism. Stop that. The thing about Tanya was she skated better when she was enraged. If there was no you can't do it type thing, she wouldn't do it. Welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the power of story in all its forms, its role in society, and how it helps to shape the ideas we think we believe in. I'm your work-in-progress host, Harv, and how's your day been so far? Mine's been pretty good. Got up early, prepared the podcast, now I'm recording it. It's actually before midday, so kind of uh, pushed through the procrastination, and uh, now I've just turned on the mic. I've got nothing to say. No, that's not true. Got a really packed show, in fact, planned for today. Don't even know if I'll be able to get through it. Maybe it'll be a two-parter. Let's see how we go. But um, one thing's for sure, wasting time in the intro isn't going to get us there. So let's just get cracking. So I had a personal sort of experience earlier in the week uh, or throughout the week at work. Um, I've been on site at a client and working very closely with one particular lady uh, who works at the company. And she, uh, over the past year, I'm going to say, might even be as little as six months, has experienced a couple of major events, one of which was her partner uh, getting a some kind of brain tumor that essentially exploded into his brain, which re- required surgery to remove and drain. And he was n- he was in real danger of not fully recovering mentally, um, possibly undergoing personality differences or perhaps even becoming, uh, you know, vegetative. Is that, are we still allowed to say that? And then more recently, and this has been a huge news story over the past few days here in Melbourne, uh, her daughter and mother were crossing the road with a green light at a pedestrian crossing And a car turned the corner against the red light and ran them both down. Uh, Her mother suffered two broken legs and a number of other injuries. Uh, Interestingly, her two-year-old child got got away with just bruises and scratches. Uh, It's an interesting contrast there, the difference between uh, the plasticity of the young body versus the rigidity of the older body. I know which side of the fence I'm on now, (laughs) on this side of 40. Can't afford to get hit by a car, that's for sure. And I was trying to think about it the other day, and I think she's undergone as much trauma and suffering as anyone that I've ever known in a short period of time. The likelihood of those two relatively rare events happening to one person in such a short period of time is very low. Obviously, it's been quite a concerning thing watching her have have to go through this. I've seen noticeable changes in her at work, in my interactions with her. Uh, 
she's become, as you can imagine, been a lot less interested in work. Obviously, when something like this happens, it really diminishes the importance of the crap that you go on with in the office. So in the past few days, the news media managed to get hold of some footage of the car accident from a CCTV camera. Um, And of course, all of a sudden that made it a big story. They say it's because, uh, you know, because they now have a chance to catch the person. Um, But in reality, I think there's a little bit of an aspect of when there's footage, it's sensational. So now we can show the masses this horrible event of a woman and a a little girl getting run over. Um, Let's put it on the airwaves. Let's get it on every fucking channel, right? I was talking to her about all of this just after she'd visited the surgeon to get an update on her partner, who apparently was a lot better and it was mostly good news. Um, And she, while she was recounting the um, events, she started crying and I kind of uh, got uncomfortable as you do when you're a stilted, uh, emotionally crippled male. And let's face it, you don't cry in an office, do you? I mean, that's kind of like an unwritten rule of etiquette, not supposed to get too personal. I think I said something highly evolved like, hey, you know, don't start crying (laughs) as if there was any way she could control it. And she said, sorry, it's just uh, it, it. when I remember it, I relive it so the emotions come back from the original time. She said, I understand it's quite uh, bad of me because uh, it, it can't be about me. I shouldn't make it about me. I'm not the one who got hurt. And I thought, oh, that's, that's an interesting perspective. But I didn't say anything at the time. But it did sort of rattle around in my brain over the next few days. And I felt like I should say something about it. I knew it wasn't going to be any more appropriate than her crying while she told me her story. But since she'd broken the ice with the wet eyes, I figured, why not? Maybe coming from uh, an unlikely source, it would kind of make her listen and make her more attentive because of the surprise of where it came from. So uh, on Friday afternoon, after we'd finished all our work and we were kind of having a bit of a, a chat and a laugh because we'd run out of things to do and we were just counting down the last 15 minutes to 5.30 or whatever when we could go home, I just out of the blue said to her, um, you know, emotional trauma is just as important as physical trauma. Um, and I said, you can make it about you. And you should, because you need to take care of yourself as well. I said, it's like when you're on a plane and they say, make sure that you put your own oxygen mask on before attending to your child. You need to be healthy so that you can help through the people that you love to go through these traumas. And I said, you've suffered as much trauma as anyone that I know in a short period of time. So just don't underestimate how much effect that'll have on you. And it was interesting. She kind of just said, oh, okay, Um, thank you. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it is going to have any effect or if it's just going to be, hey, Harvey said something weird on Friday. And to be honest, I don't mind either way because I think it's important to say these things sometimes. But this whole experience got me thinking about trauma and how 
emotional trauma, it's different from physical trauma. And in many ways, it's a more difficult problem to face because you don't give yourself permission to feel things about emotional trauma. You don't give yourself permission to have a day off work or to just feel depressed or to have a bit of a cry. You say to yourself, well, I wasn't physically hurt. So, you know, obviously I can't complain about this. I can't wallow in self-pity. You know, I've got to pick myself up by my bootstraps and uh, soldier on for the, the greater good. But I would challenge that. I think the physical trauma is easier to heal. That's a waiting game. Your body takes care of it and it's pretty much unconscious. Not to say that physical trauma doesn't affect you. Of course it does. But it's the emotional trauma that lasts throughout your life and keeps coming back to affect your behavior. So that's all a very long-winded way of saying the topic of today's podcast is trauma is just a story. And I think it's important up front to note that I'm not saying trauma is just a story in the same way I said Christmas is just a story, as in don't worry about it, it's just a story. I mean, trauma and the lasting effects of it, the core of what trauma is and how it affects our consciousness is the story component of the trauma as opposed to any physical component. It's the struggle of trying to deal with that trauma occurring and the responses of fear and stress and anxiety that result from it that are the things that we struggle with the most. You can look down at your arm and see you know, major damage to your hand or whatever, and you can look at that quite dispassionately and say, yep, okay, better go to the emergency room, get that stitched up. Uh, but don't worry, that's going to heal. But the story around how that happened to you and how you're going to avoid it in the future, essentially the lesson you learn from the event is the thing that will play on your mind later. And you often hear stories about people who've undergone, say, childhood trauma, uh, and they go through their whole lives not even being aware of the memory of that trauma occurring. And then they'll hit a certain age and all of a sudden they'll just drop to their knees, their heart will start racing, all these physiological symptoms will manifest and they'll have essentially some kind of breakdown as a result of a memory that they weren't even aware of. It's as if the trauma has just reached forward from the past and grabbed them by the throat and started choking them to death. And of course, by then, most likely, the physical aspect of the trauma is healed, and all that's reaching forward through time is the story that's sitting in their memory, festering away like a, like a cancer of, of their consciousness. So it makes you think, right, what is this trauma? Why, why does it have such a powerful effect? And why doesn't it just resolve once the physical pain is gone and the wound is healed? And of course, it all starts in the brain. Today, I really wanted to think about what's the best way to teach teachers about trauma without getting them distracted with all the technical stuff and what's the most important thing for them to understand and learn. And I thought that the best way to do it might be to just make a difference between a learning brain versus a brain in survival mode. So learning brain is this brain that's open to learning new information and it's completely okay with 
ambiguity and grays and vagueness and it sees the big picture it like pulls back and is on the balcony can look over the forest and figure out what's going on on an emotional level people in learning brain feel calm peaceful maybe a little excited about what they're about to learn maybe a little playful and having fun too and definitely curious and they're not afraid of making mistakes because it's just part of the learning process now survival brain on the other hand is completely different it's hyper focused on threat it doesn't like ambiguity it wants clear hard facts it thinks in black and white terms it doesn't want anything to be gray at all and then emotionally you can imagine that survival brain makes people feel panicky feel like a little obsessive and afraid of getting things wrong and they don't feel calm and open to learning new things they just want to get things over with and people in survival brain also really don't like making mistakes and they are afraid of looking stupid too so students in survival brain don't want to be picked on they don't want to raise their hand and ask questions and look stupid and so these people are also filled with doubt about their own ability to learn stuff and they're afraid that other people can see how stupid they really are now it's really important to understand how learning brain and survival brain interact because survival brain always trumps learning brain and it makes sense because survival brain is just trying to save your life and so if it thinks that there's something dangerous happening you better pay attention to it right but the tricky thing is that as survival brain stays on longer and longer it's harder to get out of that and it's harder to really go into learning brain and the way i think about it is kind of like the myth of sisyphus you know that guy who has to push a rock up a hill and then every day it falls back down and he has to do it over and over again and that rock that sisyphus is trying to push up well that's kind of like stress and the more stressed you feel the heavier and bigger that rock gets and it just pushes you back into survival brain quicker now the kicker is that for traumatized people stress is a really rigid and intense thing and so with trauma any little stress makes that rock grow way bigger than it normally would and because people with trauma misperceive ambiguous situations as threatening and stressful that rock just stays big all the time so i thought that was a really nice non-technical explanation of how the brain reacts to trauma and stress and obviously it's designed for teachers to become better at dealing with students who've been traumatized and so on. Um, but I think it has a wider implication and it's something that we can all learn from. Do we ever really stop being like children? Uh, it just seems to me, certainly in my case, the inside of my brain never really fully matures, even though I develop ways to convince the outer world that I have. So yeah, we could go on about the hippocampus and the, uh, the cerebral cortex and how they interact and which parts on the brain chart light up when we're suffering trauma and which ones are underactivated. But where would that really get us? I mean, we know pretty much instinctively that when we're feeling stress, our decisions are a lot worse, a lot less considered. And that the moments when we're feeling relaxed and safe are the moments when we become creative and introspective. We know this from experience. If there was someone with a gun at my head right now, I doubt I'd be able to speak, well, not to say that I'm speaking eloquently now, but with any level of eloquence about childhood trauma, I'd probably be telling you um, how 
the shit in my pants feels uh, as it burns into my skin because it's acidic because of the curry that I ate last night. Or is that gross? That is gross, isn't it? Sorry. But childhood trauma is rare, right? It's only in very extreme cases that it has these effects. And most kids, thank God, in middle-class families are not subject to this kind of trauma. Or are they? We studied 10 categories of adverse life experience that were chosen because of their prevalence in the WAIT program. Childhood sexual abuse, heavy-duty childhood physical abuse, I'm not talking spanking, um, major emotional abuse, recurrent humiliation, um, two categories of neglect, uh, growing up in a home where um, one of the members of the household uh, was chronically depressed, suicidal, mentally ill, or in the state hospital, growing up in a home without both biological parents, growing up in a home where um, one of the members of your household was alcoholic or a drug user, growing up in a home where mother was beaten, growing up in a home where one of the members of your household was imprisoned during your childhood or adolescence. Those were the 10 categories. In a middle-class population, one in 11 people has experienced six or more of those adverse life experiences in childhood. So this is very common, totally unrecognized. So there you go, like 10% of people, okay, maybe nine, have experienced six out of 10 of those traumatic experiences. Now, you could probably phrase that differently and you'd find that most people have experienced at least one of those childhood trauma categories, uh, in which case, wow, we're all a little bit fucked up. And if you cast your mind back to my interview with Doug Wilson, who was the um, marathon runner who wrote the book Kundalini Running, you may remember him saying that he believed that there were small moments of neglect in his life, uh, from his father in particular, that created the trauma that caused him to fall into escapism, drug addiction, and so on in his youth and beyond. And at the time, I questioned him and said, well, do you really think your father not taking an interest in your homework or seemingly minor things like that are enough to form a trauma? And he reminded me that when you're young, those things are your entire world. A little bit of negligence from your parents can have a massive effect on you later and cause you to be ultra-sensitive and stressed in situations that remind you of the original trauma. And when I did my episode on mind control, I played a clip from Nadine Burke Harris in a TED talk that she gave about childhood trauma. I just want to remind you of what she was saying about how long that trauma can continue to affect you. For a person with an ACE score of four or more, their relative risk of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease was two and a half times that of someone with an ACE score of zero. For hepatitis, it was also two and a half times. For depression, it was four and a half times. For suicidality, it was 12 times. 
A person with an ACE score of seven or more had triple the lifetime risk of lung cancer and three and a half times the risk of ischemic heart disease, the number one killer in the United States of America. We now understand better than we ever have before how exposure to early adversity affects the developing brains and bodies of children. It affects areas like the nucleus accumbens, the pleasure and reward center of the brain that is implicated in substance dependence. It inhibits the prefrontal cortex, which is necessary for impulse control and executive function, a critical area for learning. And on MRI scans, we see measurable differences in the amygdala, the brain's fear response center. So there are real neurologic reasons why folks exposed to high doses of adversity are more likely to engage in high-risk behavior. And that's important to know. But it turns out that even if you don't engage in any high-risk behavior, you're still more likely to develop heart disease or cancer. And yes, you may have noticed she's talking about the ACEs score there, which just happens to be referring to the same study as the clip that we heard before from Dr. Vincent Felitti, who is the founder of the study. So it's all come full circle. Back to episode 11 from here. Um, but this time, I'm not going to bombard you with conspiracy theory. However, it does make you think a little bit about how this human response could be used against you. If trauma is story, and story is something that can be made up, then can story be used to traumatize large amounts of people? Well, firstly, we know of plenty of events that have had that effect. You've got your big events like 9-11, um, mass shootings. Uh, we had one recently in New Zealand. These kinds of events are covered by the media in a certain way, and they certainly traumatize people, at least on a mild level. Um, but when you think about the effects that trauma has, they almost exactly mirror the effects of hearing about these kinds of things in the news. If there's a school shooting, for instance, you'll become more sensitive about sending your kids to school, at least for a period of time after the shooting. It becomes present in your mind and your fear response becomes irritated almost like a nerve that's been overstimulated. So surely that kind of thing qualifies as a traumatic event, even if it's not something that's happened to you directly. If you can envisage it in your life, then you experience that trauma by proxy. So the media is putting out these stories to quite large audiences. There's plenty of us who've turned off the news. I'm one of them, I guess. But still, I hear about these stories. The big ones still find me eventually. It's not that I want to not be aware of dangers, real dangers, that are present in the world that I live in, certainly my local area. But the way the media chooses to cover these things is where I have a problem. I posted recently on Facebook about, uh, you know, if we can't trust the media, then what can we do as a society, considering that it's always been such a cornerstone institution? And that 
post garnered a pretty angry response from a friend of mine, and uh, I've reflected on why that might have been, but I think he was implying that I was somehow denying that violent events are happening or that somehow the media is lying about these things, and that's not the case. What I'm talking about is the sensationalized presentation of these events that seem to me to have the direct purpose of creating fear in the population. And you see examples of this all the time. Uh, You don't need to look far, just watch the news reports and just notice that when a guy with a beard attacks a shopping center, that he'll be portrayed as a terrorist and his race will become one of the main points of the story. But when a middle-class white guy has a meltdown and goes and shoots a bunch of people, his race is not mentioned. It's a very divisive and manipulative thing that happens, and I think probably on a very subconscious level in the people in the media, but it's nevertheless extremely damaging and irresponsible. And given all that we've talked about in this episode so far, how can you forgive someone even if it's just ineptitude that's causing it? And I can predict what you're thinking, perhaps. You're thinking, well, news is driven by ratings, Harvey. News is driven by ratings. So if it rates high, then it can't be that damaging, can it? Obviously, people somehow enjoy being exposed to these kinds of stories. And you might even ask, well, what about like horror movies? What about those kinds of things that you put yourself through a deliberate trauma that are somehow kind of maybe a rehearsal for when the real trauma happens? Don't you need to some extent to desensitize yourself to train yourself for future traumas. We don't all want to become oversensitive, molly-coddled snowflakes, do we, Harvey? Do we? And yeah, it's a pretty complicated topic. I, I don't know what to tell you. All I can tell you is what the science is saying about what the trauma creates in humans and how that may be used to manipulate you. What you do with that knowledge and how you combat those risks are up to you. But I would say that these effects do tend to compound, right? Childhood trauma leads to abusive parents. Spousal abuse leads to learned helplessness and an inability to pull yourself out of the situation. Shared traumatic events tend to be repeated, exaggerated, and commemorated. How many times do we need to be reminded on the anniversary of 9-11 that we were all shitting our pants when that happened? Just like violence begets violence, trauma begets trauma. So these effects feed off each other. When we have children in society being regularly traumatized by adults' psychoses that are also born in childhood trauma, then they're going to grow up to continue that cycle. And it needs to be broken one way or another before we can start to build a more healthy, enlightened, society. Now, the good news is if they're compounding effects, it means that it's also easy, mathematically speaking, to turn the tide with a few small disruptive changes. And since it all happens in childhood, there are a number of things that we can do right now that would reduce our children's exposure to traumatic events. I mean, just don't spank your children. Practice peaceful parenting. It's pretty basic stuff. It's pretty easy. Eradicate these pointless traumatic rituals 
that we engage in, like circumcision? Do we really need to cut off parts of babies' genitalia to be able to function in society? Does it really have a place in the modern world? You know, make pregnancy and birth as stress-free as possible. There's so many different ways to give birth these days, water births and so on. It doesn't need to be all screaming and drugs and stress. You know, we just need to understand our children, need to treat them with love, and we can nurture their positive qualities with positive interactions. The world's going to throw enough curveballs at our children. They'll be bullied and they'll be given harsh lessons along the way. But that stuff should never come from their parents. A parent-child relationship is an ultimate bond of trust. And when that trust is broken, there's no stronger trauma that can happen to a child. And I suppose at the end of the day, it's worth recognizing that the stories that we tell each other are the ones that have the most power. So what stories are we telling? Are we repeating divisive mainstream media nonsense? Are we engaging in fun but pointless gossip? You know, sideshows, sport, the thing that happened on the latest reality show? Are we telling horror stories around a campfire to scare our friends? Or are we resharing dishonest and fear-mongering memes on social media? I mean, can you truly say that you're promoting productive, useful conversation that benefits society? Because if we're not doing that, then maybe it's time to consider changing our stories.